We know that there is a big transition underway in the way that our electricity is generated in the state of Michigan, that the shift is away from coal-fired power plants to some degree, with the exception of the big one down in Monroe. That's uh, already been done in a lot of places, but there's also pressure to do away with natural gas. What's going to replace it? A lot of solar and a lot of wind. And there's a new estimate on just how much acreage of land we will need in order to uh, mount that renewable capacity. It's about 209,000 acres or 326 square miles. 326 square miles of land that will be devoted to solar arrays or windmills. What does that mean going forward? And will local communities be able to use their zoning laws to manage this or in some case block it if they think it doesn't fit their community standards or the um, the character of their community? Uh, the gentleman that's going to be deciding a lot of this is the chair of the Michigan Public Service Commission. He is Dan Scripps. We love talking with him. And Dan is up bright and early with us this morning. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, guys. Great to be back. 209,000 acres sounds like a lot. When you look at 326 miles, that's two and a quarter times the city of Detroit. So two Detroits will be dedicated to to renewable energy. Um, that seems like a lot. It does, but I guess I'd make two points. First of all, it's it's not going to be concentrated in one place. So it, it represents, all told, about half of 1% of Michigan's total area spread out across the state in, in different places. And the other thing is that essentially this is about private property, that these are individual landowners. There's no eminent domain, no forcing of, of any of this. It, individual landowners deciding what they do with their property. Um, and if they choose to... to partner with a developer to have some of that be used for solar or, or wind, that this gives them a, a clearer pathway for that. Well, and, and we should point out that there is a lot of historical tradition with this. We know that, you know, in some circles, drilling for oil is, uh, or any kind of fossil fuels, is they think it's going to be disruptive or bring pollution to their community. And we have time and time again sided with the owners of that property, that they have an inherent right to develop the riches underneath it. That's right. And and for a lot of those things, oil and gas wells are a great example, but also gas pipelines, crude oil pipelines, carbon dioxide pipelines. Gravel the pits. Decision, well, I was just talking about the energy space, which is what I know. And that, But those decisions are actually made today at the Michigan Public Service Commission in terms of siting, mm-hmm. um, that they are not. And it's. I think it reflects a balance that these are critical energy infrastructure that we need to keep the lights on. And, uh, and so trying to balance local concerns with with the state's need for reliable, affordable energy. And Yeah, uh, and Dan, good morning. I just want to know, like, who's going to be making these zoning and permitting decisions? Will it be the locals or will it be the, the Public Service Commission? Because the locals are saying, listen, you're, you're killing home rule here. You're taking away our our voice, and we're having little to no to say about what we want in our in our communities. So for, for a lot of these projects, um, and this was a change that was made in the House, the process actually starts with the local unit of government. Uh, if they've got a renewable energy or, or, or a zoning ordinance that, that allows for renewables in their community, um, then it starts with them and it can end with them. But if they ultimately don't have a, an ordinance that's compatible with the state standards, then if a developer gets a rejection at the local level or there's no decision made, they're sort of just dragging their feet, they do have the option to come to the commission for a certificate. There's a number of provisions in the legislation that that ensure that a, a, the local units of government and the, the property owners, including the property owners next door and 
and the folks that won't have the, the facilities on their property have a voice in the process. And I, I note that, again, we, we do this for a lot of other energy infrastructure, but the protections in place for locals and for the neighbors of these properties go far beyond what's in place for essentially anything else. But they, they get to um, intervene by right. The developers actually pay into a fund uh, that the local units can, can use to, to, to participate in our cases so that it doesn't come from the local taxpayers. Um, there, there's a requirement of community benefits and that when we make our decision, we have to look at the impact on land, including prime farmland, look at how much, not just the one project in front of us, but how much in total is being used in that local community um, for energy generation, and then require things like fire response plans, dark sky friendly lighting plans, decommissioning plans. So there really is the effort to make sure that the, the local units of government and the people in that community have a real voice in the process, but there is also a chance to sort of balance local interests versus those statewide interests in a process at the state. Dan, I understand there were a lot of amendments before the actual vote uh, came to pass. Uh, one would be, as you mentioned briefly, developers have to pay $75,000 to local government to cover legal costs, and they would be required to pay $2,000 per megawatt toward local police, fire, and emergency responders. What is the benefit of that amendment? So the, the first part is that, that our, our cases are essentially like court cases. And so if a case came to us, um, it would require that the, the developers behind that project are actually putting in place dollars to allow the, the local unit of government to participate without, again, having to go to their, their local taxpayers for that. So it's, it's, that one is designed to ensure that the local units really do have a meaningful voice in the process and can do it without breaking the bank at the local level. And the second one is just to ensure that, you know, there, there is going to be, you know, if there's a solar facility or, or the like, there's uh, a concern that that puts additional strain on local services. So requiring the developers to pay into a fund locally to help fund police and fire uh, is designed to ensure that the local unit gets, gets the benefits of the project through increased tax base and, and whatever, but also gets the dollars needed to support the services that, that now sort of are, are being used in some cases um, as a result of, of that development. Dan, you rightly point out that the, that the local zoning boards will have the first crack at this, but they're concerned that if they take an unpopular position on these projects, that they'll get trumped. And, and while you say that the local control is to some degree protected, then why is it that the Michigan Townships Association and the Michigan Association of Counties uh, testified against these bills? Yeah, I think I think it's it's because ultimately at the end of the day, if if there is a project that sort of meets the requirements in statute, if a local unit of government says no at the first crack, it it can come to us and and ultimately if we find that that it does meet the requirements and that the balance between sort of the local concerns being expressed, but the state need for that energy infrastructure sort of weighs in favor of, of moving forward, we we can say yes. So. It is a difference um, it, between what is being done today, and but it's also, I, and I just come back to this, consistent with how we cite virtually every other piece of energy infrastructure mm -hmm. and one that, that ultimately respects the private property rights of the individual landowner uh, who wants to go forward with this project in partnership with the developer. Why not just move the into the township? No to them. I'm sorry, Dan. Why, why, why not no, just move into the township next door? Why can't there be more flexibility here? Or to the county next door? Or is it about having the generation... Uh, closer to the customer so that you have fewer transmission lines, things like that? 
Well, a lot of these depend either, you know, the wind speeds can vary fairly significantly. The point that you made about transmission lines is exactly right. That's one of the biggest impacts or biggest uh, influencers on, on where projects ultimately get cited, how close they are to be, inter to be able to interconnect to the larger grid. So there are sort of geographic limitations on these in terms of why, why a certain community is picked over, over another one. 2030 is pretty close. How much construction are we about to see for all of this? Well, that's the, um, the, the other bill in this package would have us move towards 50% renewable energy by 2030, which is a pretty significant ramp up. But it's actually about what we're anticipating as a result of the integrated resource plans, the long-term plans that the utilities have already filed and have had approved by us. So it's, it's definitely a, a ramp up over the next seven years and, uh, and beyond, but it's, it's also not, not that much more aggressive than, than where we're already headed. Dan, are you, are, are you worried about uh, vandalism once these, uh, um, these solar uh, fields are, are put up, people coming to try to damage folks who are not in favor of it trying to do that, and how do you protect from that? Well, we've seen individual and isolated incidents of that. We've seen it with the bulk electric grid, too. There were stories out last uh, winter of, of vandalism in North Carolina and the Pacific Northwest, people going after substations. I, I think to some extent that that's the reality that we live in. But, um, but I, you know, I think the traditional police response is, is probably the, the, the right approach here. Mm -hmm. All right, Dan, thanks very much. It's uh, a delicate balance will be struck, and, uh, and, and you're the guy that's going to have to be the judge here. So, uh, Better or worse. Yeah, I think a hard hat may be required. Uh -huh. uh, all right. Dan, thank so much. Uh, Dan Scripps, the chairman of your Michigan Public Service Commission. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Just for some context, guys, right now, especially if you go up through Gratiot County on 127. I've seen it. Between yep. Lansky, I mean, it's windmills everywhere, right? But you don't see them in a lot of places. Right now, we've got 17,000 acres currently in use for renewables. We've got 117,000 currently in the works. You add in the 209,000 additional acres, that means 343,000 acres will be used by renewables. 20 times more acreage than what we have now. Just for context about how ubiqu uh, ubiquitous this could become. Time for the S&P Global Mobility Minute uh, with Tom Libby, brought to you by Dana. Dana, people finding a better way. While Tesla recently has gotten most of the limelight related to electric vehicles, there's another brand new to the U.S. market that is gradually establishing a foothold in the EV space. Rivian started selling EVs in the U.S. in September of 2021 with the R1T pickup. A year later, in August 22, the brand began delivering the R1S, a mid-size luxury sport utility. This past August, Rivian delivered 3,082 new electric vehicles in the U.S., and this ranked Rivian at number eight among all brands selling EVs, ahead of Mercedes-Benz, Audi, Nissan, Subaru, and others. 85% of these were the Rivian R1S utility, with the remaining being the R1T pickup. The five U.S. markets where Rivian has had the most success include Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, and Denver. These are not surprising results given the general popularity of electric vehicles in these cities. When households come to market and acquire Rivian, vehicles most often in their garages are Tesla, Rivian itself, Toyota, Ford, and BMW. I'm Tom Libby with this week's Automotive Minute from S&P Global Mobility, formerly I Just Market.